You're listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast, illuminating the unheard stories of today's top leaders in impact with your host, Gino Borges. Welcome back, everyone, to the Poetry of Impact podcast. Joining us today is Dr. Renee Lertzman, a pioneer and leader at the intersection of psychology, climate, and environment. Renee is a climate psychologist on a mission to infuse as much literacy about the complexity of the human psyche, particularly paired with our present day challenges in climate. In this particular episode, Renee tells us a story of how early on in her career, she saw the inextricable connection between psychology and the natural world. She shifted from being a theorist to a practitioner who uses psychology as a tool for unlocking the full potential of the human experience. Renee shares her own self-practices and how these practices extend beyond her own individual existence to co-regulating with others. She talks about how making a label of climate anxiety actually can be a disservice to our recognition and peacemaking with the current state of humanity and that we need to stay close to the source of our troubles. Ultimately, Renee's work is about enabling alignment and everything she does personally and professionally is in service of alignment. Drop in and enjoy the talk with Renee Lertzman. Hi, Renee. It's great to have you here. Hello. Great to be here with you. So, Renee, you are um, at the intersection of a lot of different things. Um, some people call themselves a psychologist. Some people say that they're in climate, but few people say that I'm in both or I'm at the intersection of it. And so that was part of my attraction or resonance for reaching out to you was how better to understand the multidisciplinary approach to climate and also knowing that in order to get to this point of you're sitting on this intersection, it probably hasn't been a straight road by any means. And you've probably had to do a fair amount of work on trying to uh, comb this all together. So maybe take us back to that moment where you had that aha or you and where you were um and you realize like mm, this just isn't working um and yet i just realized that this may be kind of my pivot mhm yeah thank you and thanks for having me in this conversation um i feel like there's actually like three moments that immediately came to mind at different points in my career my journey so the first moment that I'm thinking about is when I was at UC Santa Cruz and I was a very strongly identified psychologist. Like I was sure I was going to be a psychologist and, you know, I had already been in therapy in high school and I loved psychology and there I was at UC Santa Cruz and I was taking a class just as one does. And, you know, one of these, you just pick a class and I was taking introduction to environmental studies. And I was having this experience of going between these big lectures where you're in the lecture hall and you're basically hearing about a litany of uh, very grave and serious issues. Um, Whether it's about the soil or whether it's about climate or species, whatever, like it felt like every week we were presented with really a version of how 
effed up the world is and and thanks to humans Mm -hmm. okay so i was having that experience and then i was going and having my psychology classes that were you know basically uh you know social psychology and clinical psychology and all that and there was no mention at all of what was happening with our environment and our climate so i was you know 19 20 years old and I had a visceral, very direct sense of almost like a vertigo where I didn't understand why these worlds weren't talking to each other. And I felt, frankly, disoriented by that. And I felt aggrieved, <laughs> which is to say I felt that the, 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 there was not enough care being given to the act of learning about and really coming into awareness about these issues. I felt like we were just being sort of presented with this and then expected to somehow process it and deal with it. And then I was going into my psychology classes, which felt also in a different way, myopic. And so I was really, for whatever reason, able to see the, the limits of what was happening, you know, and, and I really had a, you know, starting then, I had a very strong awareness that I was going to connect these worlds. I, it was unwavering and it was super clear. And it goes back to that time, that year at UC Santa Cruz, that it came together. And I'll just say, I'll add that it was such an existential crisis for me that I was really having a hard time with staying focused in my studies. So uh, you mentioned you have a PhD in philosophy. You know, I was, I took a philosophy class and I actually just kind of dropped out (laughs) and just never officially withdrew. Like I was literally kind of checked out. Um, And so I ended up, you know, these things happen kind of miraculously finding this field study program that, was being offered. I saw a flyer in the mailroom that basically said two month backpacking trip, environmental philosophy, uh, two months backpacking around wilderness areas in in California. And I just knew immediately I was like, I'm doing that (laughs) and never backpacked in my life. And as it happens, (laughs) the, the instructor teaching it, It was his first course. He had just finished his own master's. He had studied with a wilderness psychology professor who, you know, a little obscure, but someone who literally, this was his thing, was using, like, really going into wilderness as a, almost like a rite of passage and really taking seriously what it means to go into wilderness um, intentionally and mindfully. And so that was what happened for me. I ended up in this field study. I came out a different person. It feels like a revolving door. And from then I just became more and more and more focused. But to be fair, even before I did the field study, I knew that this was what I wanted to do. And I'm curious because, I mean, that was obviously a while ago. How has it evolved? Like, I mean, what, um, do you feel like that essence is still there or and the details keep changing around it? Or is there some kind of ongoing evolution where there's an expansion of that essence or you're just kind of traveling? Yeah, I'm just curious because sometimes you talk to people, there's this essence moment like you just had, 
and they carry it throughout their whole life and just reformulate it? Or is it, and, you know, in a lot of cases, I can really conceive of my own life that way. Yeah. So I'm curious about how the essence has evolved for you. Mm -hmm. Well, in some ways, the essence has stayed the same in that what I wanted to understand back then was at the deepest level, what does it mean to be a human being today? And what can psychology, the human, let's just say the human insight world, but especially psychology and especially the kind of psychology that is interested in the whole person. So I'm, I'm not a behavioral psychologist. I'm not interested in cognitive and behavioral psychology per se. I'm interested in what do we know about humans and how we process emotion, uh, information, threat, trauma, how can that inform and help us understand what it means to be kind of dealing with these existential crises and threats in service of how do we actually meet the moment and engage and respond in a way that is commensurate with the threat. So that fundamental essence of basically using psychology to unlock us. That's really what it's about for me. But what has evolved in my journey is that I think I started out much more as a, um, a a scholar and a intellectual. So I love ideas and I love theory. And so I just spent a lot of time with theory and, you know, ornate kind of um, ways of looking at this. And and especially, I, I just absolutely love psychoanalysis. And, and especially psychoanalysis that's specifically interested in social and political issues, like kind of the human unconscious. So I, I spent a lot of time with that. And you know what? I, I don't dwell there so much now. To me, it's way more applied. And I'm much more interested in the practice of this and what does this mean and look like in the context of what people are actually doing on the ground. And so... If, if it's okay with you, I'm going to share, actually, it's making me think about the moment that happened for me. This like, sure. So the moment that I had that shift from, I think, being more of a theorist to becoming a practitioner was, um, I was living in Portland, Oregon. I was doing a postdoc. I had finished my PhD and somehow I was invited to be a engage in a sort of a thought session strategy session with a organization working on green it was called it was green electronics so basically in a kind of a elect uh, green advocacy electronics agency and they were designing a campaign that was consumer facing and i just came in as a sort of thinker <laughs> person And I basically said, okay, I'm going to give you this kind of session about what I know to be, you know, what I know about the psychology of sustainability and the psychology of climate change and some psychoanalysis thrown in. And then they had this whole creative team that just took it and went off and created these campaigns, like creative work. 
And then they came back and we all looked at it together and it was just like so incredible to see what they did and how they took the concepts and made basically, you know, visual creative work. It was a high. And I, I kind of got a taste of that. And at that point, I feel like I actually, I turned my back on academia, like permanently. I was just like, this is where the action is. So that was how it really got started. Do you see, just circling back on this notion of uh, the human being kind of in action, what have you seen in terms of um, the interface between the humans, humans, us, uh, as somatic bodies in Earth? And it seemed like the type of psychology you're talking about to a large extent is a somatic understanding of the psyche, a very embodied sort of sensual understanding. And so you can understand that conceptually and pretend that it just exists right here in my own individuation, or you could see it as uh, I'm just merely an extension of earth. Mm-hmm. And, right. you know, perhaps, perhaps we're delving into the field of eco-psychology, but I, I, I'm interested in how much of how you're helping people is helping them explore that interface or is that a little too existential for people Mm, um, or mm -hmm. is that a different kind of deep dive than what tech is ready for? Right. Well, I love that question and it's helping me see that the kind of psychology I've always been involved with and interested in is relational psychology. So you can call it whatever you want. You know, um, my PhD technically is psychosocial that was the terminology that was used psychosocial because it's trying to basically acknowledge that there's it's about relationship it's about how we are in you know the broader system i'm very influenced by the work of joanna macy who you know very well known um buddhist scholar basically you know who 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 really was a pioneer in designing experiential opportunities for people, primarily activists, to experience themselves relationally, to experience themselves relationally to what's happening in the world. And her focus initially was on nuclear war. And, um, and then it broadened and became, you know, also included kind of ecological and climate crises. Her work was very much about let's all kind of get together and go through some practices that really, really enable us somatically to experience ourselves as part of the whole. And so there's many ways of doing that, that use imagination and imagery and, you know, all of that. Um, And I made a decision back in UC Santa Cruz to sort of pivot from that and to, take that and see if I could translate that into contexts that are not so deep eco psych kind of forums that maybe a lot of people wouldn't be find themselves drawn to, but how do we bring that into, you know, organizations, right? So it's very much, a, it's, it's almost like the baseline of what I do is about how to help us understand our experience and what we're feeling overwhelm or maybe feeling anxious 
or powerless or whatever those feelings might be that come up around climate to really see that as expression of our interconnection and our relationship with each other and with all of life. So, so that's, that's very key for me. And I come at that through, you know, I'm very inspired by somatic psychology and somatic therapy, also Buddhist work, mindfulness work. There's just a whole variety of ways of getting there, but I don't, you know, I, I think I'm kind of subtle in how I come at that. So I don't generally come in to work with a group and organization, say, okay, we're all going to do a process here. <laughs> you know, I might have us just sort of, okay, let's everyone take a moment and arrive. Okay. You know, um, so it's subtle, but it's there. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. What practices do you do individually to keep that interface and that relational component between your your body and your being and the earth um, alive, amplified, and that sense of feeling alive? Part of it is where I choose to be and to live. So for me, being in and having access to nature has always been very important. I experience that just by living, being able to be around life that's happening you know, buzzing kind of, you know, natural life. I, um, I feel it's very important for me to take myself into environments like the coast, let's say, or the mountains where I really have that sense of proportion of, you know, the more than human world and experience, experiencing myself as in relation to that. So there's that. And then I move, I'm really into five rhythms right now. <laughs> so I've just discovered nice. this incredible practice called five rhythms. And, uh, I started doing it several months ago and I've, I'm going next week back to Esalen to do like my fifth <laughs> five rhythms, um, with a amazing teacher, uh, who I, who's like in the lineage of the five rhythms work. And to be honest, like every time I go do the five rhythms, I, I, want to basically be able to relate that to the client to climate work and i'm trying to kind of explore what we can do there if we can join forces and maybe do a sort of climate related five rhythms offering so the the five rhythms work has been pretty game-changing for me actually as a somatic practice for sure. So here's a funny little side story. The last time I went to Burning Man, I camped with Rhythm Wave, which is a five rhythm, oh, wow. um, the, uh, basically themed camp. So, so you did a lot of it. <laughs> did a lot of it all week long, all week long, all day long. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. With a lot of dust. Yeah. 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 So um, very interesting. And um, it's really good that you're going down Esalen. I mean, they've had some, some great teachers in that space for sure. Mm-hmm. Now, what happens when you go into, uh, you know, a tech scene? So let's sort of think about this. So you have a very sort of technocratic type of ideology in sort of the tech world that, um, for good or bad, tends to believe that um, the extensions that humans create can solve any problem. So there's like an obsession with problem solving. And has your experience been that there might be a little bit of an opportunity cost with that lens, with that lens being the primary lens? And I know there's conversations around 
in tech with the wisdom 2.0 movement just to try to create a, or to humanize in sort of the tech scene and now you're talking about climate which which for me even though um you know the white papers are the science part of it but it seems like you are working in a space where there's there's what i would call the white space is uh, on the margins of those white papers are human beings that still need to move Mm -hmm. um, and be moved. And to a large extent, I see you in the realm of motivation and you creating different kinds of methods and practices to actually get this body and psyche and aligned in a way where it just feels like harmoniously able to move in a direction that's aligned with a particular intent. Yes. My work is 100% about enabling alignment. And and it's based on the premise that it's painful for us to live out of alignment. It's very, diff- most of us feel challenged about how to be in alignment with what we care about and what are is most essential to us, given that we're living in and kind of embedded in a system that is still in the direction of unsustainability and harm. So everything I do is in service of alignment. Um, I actually um, don't use the language of motivation, except for I'm very influenced and inspired by what's called motivational interviewing, which is a body of work. It's like, has that name? But I I don't feel like it's about motivating people. You know, it's about evoking and uncovering and enabling what is already there. And it's about creating and cultivating the context that allow us to truly come into that and to access our resources. Like this, it's a fundamental position that each of us as humans, each, each person, you know, has, has access to resources, to internal resources in terms of our, our life, kind of what we care about and what energizes us and what motivates us and all of that. And then a lot of stuff gets in the way. And so I'm interested in like how to clear that and free that up. And I don't really care to some degree how that happens. So that's where I'm kind of opportunistic and I'm kind of like, I use what works. And that means I might use some tools and practices from psychology. I might use some things from motivational interviewing. I might use something from neuroscience or mindfulness practice or whatever. So, so that's what it's about. And so that's, that's one, one response. And then the follow-up to the techno optimist techno lens, um, is again, my, my lens is as a psychologist and pretty psychodynamically oriented. So I see, I interpret behavior through that lens. And so I interpret the techno fixation and the techno optimism as itself a form of, that's a defense mechanism. It's a way of managing anxiety and it's a way of managing what feels just intolerable that to contemplate, which is change and really hard change. And also all the stuff that comes with confronting our situation, which is um, far more complicated than anyone is talking about right now. 
you know, it's like, it's just like, it's like, there's guilt, there's shame, there's feeling, you know, what does it mean to be responsible? What does it mean to be, you know, accountable, complicit? All of that stuff is part of what happens when we have to confront our situation. And for some people, it's really intense, especially if you are in the private sector, if you're in the corporate world, if you're in industry, if you're in extractive industries, there's a real coming to terms with what what we're doing and what my role is or my part of that is. And so, um, you know, unless you have a way to work through that and process that with other people, we will just tend to to cope with in, in a whole variety of ways, which include just getting really myopic and fixated on whether it's technology is going to save us or whether it's this is going to do it or that's going to do it. I think those are strategies. Those are strategies. And so when I am in these environments, I am thoughtful about that. I'm not not going to come along and basically attack that or say, you know, what's wrong with you? You know, don't you see that tech is not going to save us all? It's like these are human issues that have to involve the full human. Um, I I navigate that in a thoughtful way. But with the intention of like, it's all about evoking our own, what's our, like, it's about evoking the insight and the intelligence and the wisdom that is there. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, for sure. When's the last time, <clears throat> but as you're talking, I was like, okay. So obviously, Renee has bumped up into a lot of frustration with even though so these are your aims. So I want to know the last time where you just like threw your arms in the sheesh. I mean, do, you, do I sound frustrated? More, no, no, you don't sound frustrated. But the reality is, is that anybody doing your kind of work is going to have <clears throat> moments where you're going to bump into people that just don't understand it or are going to translate it in different ways. Um, and you have this vision of potentially of how things could potentially work. It's not being adopted at the rate. You know, I mean, there's just being on earth is a, a large part of just managing the expectations of, of, of life. Right. Mm-hmm. And so um, where I'm going with this is that, is there a point and periodically does it happen where Renee just goes, you know, today I'm just going to go like take off my shoes and my socks and just go walk through the redwoods and just going to lay on the ground mm. and listen. And I don't care about all this achievement stuff that I'm working on and trying to change and motivate or not, excuse me, not motivate, but uncover. Um, <laughs> and it's not so much that you're giving up as much as that, that maybe just, uh, it's one of those moments of pause, mm-hmm. right? Where mm-hmm. sometimes the best thing we can do is actually just stop yeah. and, and, and actually reflect on, on where we're at. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I always like to give our listeners because all of us who are out there trying to do something have bouts of dealing with frustration or expectations that weren't met or outcomes that are much different than what we anticipated. Uh, and so mm-hmm. what does Renee do, do during those moments? Mm-hmm. Well, I do feel frustrated quite pretty often. I feel, I feel been feeling frustrated today. I'm feeling really frustrated today <laughs> and I am absolutely feeling 
like that moment of, oh my God, you know, um, I'm working with a, with a client in a client system where it's just like, are you kidding me? Like you have so much potential and I'm, I'm like trying to help here and you're just not seeing it. So I have that experience often and I will go outside. I'll walk around. I can, I do actually walk outside and, and take off my shoes and walk around. Um, going to Esalen is pretty therapeutic for me. So, you know, <laughs> of course, that's yes. kind of my way. I go to Esalen. I'm like in the hot springs. <laughs> um, I'm getting like massages every day, whatever. <laughs> and, and to be honest, I'm, yeah. I'm really like, there's a lot happening. You know, I'm really able to take a step back and reflect and it just feels so incredibly generative and so just so I'm so grateful that I can do that. But of course I can't just run off to Esalen every time I want to. So I guess I have a, my response is yes. I do feel routinely frustrated. Um, I vent with friends, I go outside, but I kind of wish I did more of what you're describing. If I'm completely honest, I don't think I do that as much as I could. That's the honest truth is that instead of going out and lying on the ground and walking the redwoods, which are very close to where I live in Woodside, sometimes I, I don't, you know, sometimes I just, I get, I just get fretful and I go on social media and I post a bunch of stuff on LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah. So one, uh, so one of the things that I find very therapeutic is actually taking my shoes off and walking barefoot and then actually laying on the mm, ground. I love that. It's really, um, it's really recharging, you know, to also like when I'm on the ground, I'm really like, I have a practice of grounding where I just, you know, go through and sort of let go and send it down into the earth and let the earth receive all that stuff. And I also have learned a practice that I'm grateful for, um, which is drawing energy up from the earth. And I had a teacher once, ta- you know, who talked about I loved how she phrased it. She would say, we are entitled to the earth's energy, just like the plants and the trees and so forth. And so there's this practice where she has you kind of visualize the energy from the earth coming up through your feet, you know, and really resourcing your system like a plant or a tree. And so I do that as much as I can. I also do a practice of me, not me, where I will do a sort of almost like a scan to scan energetically like what is here that is mine and what is not mine and again sending out any kind of stuff that's not mine to be holding and then just kind of that reminder this is my body like this is where I live and only I get to live here you know what I mean it's like this is my home this is my space so I find that that feels like kind of basic energetic hygiene. It's just to kind of like continue to clear out, draw energy in, release kind of thing. It's not something I 
I think I've ever shared openly, especially on a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have another question in terms of what you just shared. How do you know what's you and what's not you? Well, that's since yeah. since that notion of you is in, in you know in a semiotic realm of you because you're talking about like issues or something. You're talking about topics and curious on how you navigate and come to terms with what is you and what is not you during this energetic hygiene moment. Right, exactly. Well, that's that is tricky, um, but for me, <laughs> it's it's noticing what I'm holding that like, isn't my own, you know, worry or concern or anxiety. So usually it's like, I'm noticing if there's some, some stuff there, like some, some tightness or some anxiety or some, you know, that, that actually I'm realizing I just picked up from maybe a client, like what they're worried about. And it's sort of like letting people like really honoring, like what's my business and what's someone else's business. Like Byron Katie says, there's my business, your business, and God's business kind of thing. And <laughs> nice. I just, yeah, it's, that's great. It's that's obviously great not, yeah, it's not cut and dry, but it's, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. So, a large part of uh, me getting involved in climate and climate finance was related to two years ago. When my little um, son was in August, was pressing his face up against the glass because he couldn't go in outside because of the smoke out west. You know, it, it was that moment where I realized that, um, you know, I have this pretty extensive network who's interested in doing investments in climate and doing the right thing. So I put this opportunity together in order for people to invest in climate infrastructure. But I must say that I still sit with a certain amount of, I don't know if this is the right term, but it's sort of eco-anxiety from like a headline, for instance, all these um, headlines now about this global heat wave, right? I mean, it's just almost impossible not to read about record-setting heat wherever you're, where, wherever you're at in the globe at this moment. Mm -hmm. And then for us out West in particular, we have a unique, out in the Western United States, we have a unique not only is it getting hotter, but it's getting drier, which I, which is obvious. And here we have a lot of fuel to burn uh, in terms of uh, nature's fuel. Have you had many people start coming to you because it feels a little bit existential? And it's like where now all of a sudden I'm like making lifestyle decisions based on this inevitable moment of smoke, which is going to come and sometime in August. We just don't know when. Yeah. And I mean, how are you dealing with it? And given that you have this background in uh, psychology and in climate, just just eco anxiety in general, right? Um, and but I was just trying to make it particular to my situation because if I'm living in Bangladesh, I'm worried about my house flooding, right? I'm not worried about that in Reno, Nevada. I'm worried about the smoke. So everybody is being impacted. No one's immune. No class of citizen is going to be immune. It's not just affecting, um, you know, the countries that, that we pretend sort of didn't exist, but now it's everywhere. And I think this is on a lot of people's minds mm -hmm. uh, because it doesn't feel like one-off events anymore, but feels like a recurring theme, yeah. life moments that people are having to adapt with and having to be resilient. So 
I would love for you to sort of walk us through the dynamics of how that brew occurs and then what kind of practices you've seen that people have have been adopting or you've been adopting to try to navigate this sort of this new world? Mm -hmm. Well, most people I work with are experiencing some degree of anxiety. You know, I'm asked about this all the time. It's, it's a huge topic right now. I mean, I, to be fair, I have been focused on anxiety and eco anxiety since like I was 20 and I was calling it that. And it was like, it wasn't resonating. And now it really is. (laughs) And so I guess what I'm trying to say is this is now completely shared amongst, you know, millions of people. And I think that, you know, it's, it's incredibly important, as I said earlier, how we relate with our anxiety is number one. So number one is just, and I get this straight out of, you know, a lot of, Buddhist teaching or mindfulness teaching, which is what is your attitude towards your own experience, right? So I think that's number one is, is being able to acknowledge and honor what the experience is that's coming up and not judging it, not evaluating it, not trying to change it, but just saying, okay, like I'm, I'm feeling really freaked out. I'm feeling really anxious right now. I'm feeling really concerned, you know, and, and, And the reason why I say that is because most people have a hard time doing that. We tend to want to immediately push it away or judge ourselves or basically, oh God, you know, I'm being so negative. I'm being a downer and I'm going to really bum out my partner and I better like not be so depressed or whatever. And like we get on ourselves and that just that just takes up a lot of energy. It's not helpful. And so I think it's like, let's just start with basics. How do we turn towards our own experience in a way that is compassionate and accepting and, and with curiosity? So that is really a huge piece of work right there that takes practice and support and, and all of that. So there's that. And then there's, um, I think, frankly, we do need to be shifting this conversation a bit away from I'm I'm just noticing I'm getting a little tired of the whole eco anxiety fixation because to your point, this is life now. If we keep calling it out as eco anxiety and climate anxiety, it makes it sound like it's a pathology or there's something and then it's like gonna go away. Well actually we're what we're really talking about is what does it mean to be a human being today? How do we build um, new capabilities and capacities for resilience, for health, for well-being in the face of what's happening? How do we stay present without, you know, disintegrating or falling apart? And that, to me, is fundamentally a spiritual question. It's a, it's a existential question, right? I, I I mean, it's not just spiritual because you don't have to be spiritual to turn towards, you know, practices that can help us stay present. But I, I don't see any way around it right now. I do not see a way around the need to develop this capacity 
to stay with, there's a phrase that I love, and I think it's Donna Haraway, who basically has this phrase, staying with the trouble. And how do we stay with the trouble, to me, is like the real question of this time. And, and, and it's also exactly what I have learned from studying psychoanalysis all these years, which is the opposite of staying with the trouble is when we go into our defense mechanisms, such as you know, demonizing, polarizing, projecting onto others, disconnecting, you know, turning it towards ourselves, kind of self-attack, minimizing, rationalizing, disavowal, you know, focusing on solutions and not being able to handle having real conversation about what's happening. Those are all strategies and what Freud actually called defense mechanisms. He came up with that, which is now supported in mainstream psychology and neuroscience. So staying with the trouble, and that takes us to the role of relationship. That takes us to the relationality of what it means to be human. And then I go to Daniel Siegel's work on what he calls interpersonal neurobiology, right? Like interpersonal neurobiology is basically a way of just saying that we are relational and we influence each other. I'm regulating with you right now. We're co-regulating each other. We're co-regulating our nervous systems. And so there is no me over here and you over there. And the way to keep us in that zone where we're productive and functioning and high functioning, resilient, has a lot to do with the inner work of how do I regulate myself and kind of manage my own kind of reactivity and my own experience inside. But how am I relating and bringing that into the interactions I have? And I don't think we talk enough about that. I think Maybe we're starting to, but I'm thinking about people who might be listening and thinking about what can I do? You know, how can I move into the world, move in the world in a different way? And I feel like we don't talk enough about the power of when we're with people who are really present and the the transformative influence of being fully present and being able to kind of hold space for whatever is there. You know, that is what actually shifts our capacity to go from being reactive to responsive is being creating those spaces where you're with someone, it's your manager, it's your colleague, it's your peer, it's your friend. And you're, you just have this sense of like, wow, I can really be, you know, present here. Um, and then it tends to open things up just like we're having in this conversation, like the way that you're showing up as being fully present. That's an example of what can happen. And then I'm able to hear myself say things I haven't even thought about before. That's what each of us <laughs> can be doing in our respective realms. You know, there, I will just mention, there's a really amazing podcast with Peter Senge that is, I think it's called the power presence or something presence. And he tells us, he opens it with a, a whole story that's very like 
really lands this where, you know, it's a, it's a leadership team and they're, they're in a crisis and, you know, things aren't working out and blah, blah, blah. And then it's like the leader basically says, you know what? I have no idea what to do. And everyone's just like shocked. And there's just kind of like, whoa, did he really just say that? And then there's a space. And then because there's a space and people could just be real. And then of course, you know, it's typical, like, and then we, we figured it out (laughs) and we exceeded our market, blah, blah, blah. But, but it was very, that is the, that's the transformative piece that I don't think we're talking enough about is the power of what it means to be truly present. Renee, I love this idea of staying with the trouble. I think it's really um, sort of uh, perspective by incongruity to some extent. So we've covered a lot of different uh, angles. Just want to give you the last word on something that may have emerged inside of you that really didn't get um, its full expression that you may want to share with the audience. And then also um, let the audience know where they can learn a little bit more about your work as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess I would would add that I think what is being called on us now is an opportunity. And I'm, I am actually a very positive person. So I do tend to frame things in that way. Cause that's how I genuinely feel like that doesn't mean I think everything's going to work out, but I, my invitation to people listening is to consider orienting to this time we're in as an opportunity to evolve and grow and develop as humans. And I think that that is the only sane response that we can make right now is how do we become better humans? Like, what does it mean to be a good human? What is that? Like, is that, it's not like any one thing for any one person, but for some, it might mean, okay, you know what? Like I'm actually going to devote my time and energy to this watershed in my region that I feel very strongly about. You know, I, it could be, I'm going to go learn how to meditate. I'm going to finally work with that teacher who, whose books I just love. You know what I mean? It's like, I think that um, that is what this time is asking us to do, is to really engage in the real work of change. And change is hard for humans. There's a lot of ambivalence about change, but fundamentally, I think that we as humans are in fact like plants. You know, we, we, we go in the direction of growth and evolution and, and development if we are given those conditions and if we create those conditions. So I think that's on all of us is to consider how do I show up better? How can I grow and how do I support and enable and create the conditions that allow others who I am influencing and impacting to grow as well. And to really take seriously our responsibility to do that, even when it means going outside of our safety and our comfort zones. So that's what I would say. Well said. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks Renee. That's really wonderful. And um, a, a nice summary of, you know, I mean, your intention for the reason why, why you're doing the work and, where can people learn a little bit more about your work as well? 
So I have two sites, two websites, and you know, there's LinkedIn and all of that. But I, I have my site, which is ReneeLertzman.com. And I will just say, um, I absolutely love speaking. And I love um, working with groups, like, love it, especially really like engaged people who are like ready to do stuff. So I would invite anyone to reach out to me to talk, you know, to engage on that in that way. I also have a, a grant and uh, a grant project called Project Inside Out. And I was given kind of seed funding from the KR Foundation to get this up and going. And I'm now moving into the next phase. Would love to be able to really scale it out to be an actual community of practice. The whole thing is about how do we be guides? How do we show up as guides? And there's some tools and resources on there. It was meant intended for an advocacy community, but it's really, you know, any organization can get a lot from it. But people can find that at projectinsideout.net. Thanks so much, Renee. I mean, you're doing great work. And I mean, thanks for joining us today and sharing a little bit about your story and, um, you know, your thoughts along the way. Yeah. Thank you for having me and for a great conversation in the middle of my day. (laughs) Hey everyone. Thanks again for listening in to today's conversation on the poetry of impact. The podcast exists for and because of listeners like you. Be sure to subscribe to the Poetry of Impact podcast on your favorite podcast player. And if you have time, leave us a review. Thanks again and goodbye for now. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast. For show notes and additional resources, visit poetryofimpact.com.